0: really hard to see uh, how to study most of what's interesting about politics
1: without game theory. That is Professor Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. He works at the New York University, he's the director of the Alexander Hamilton Center for Political Economy, he's been a top aide to the CIA, and he likes to use game theory in order to predict political outcomes
0: game theory is just a a theoretical framework for thinking about how people interact strategically that is how people behave when they have to take into account that other people are trying to compete with them and beat them uh, and they have to pick their actions just as if they were playing chess for example where they have to think ahead If I do this, what will somebody else do? If I do that, what will somebody else do? What do I think is going to work out best for me? It's just really hard to see how you can think seriously about politics without thinking that way. And once you think that way, then you might as well think that way as rigorously as you can. And that means using the mathematics behind game
1: theory. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of What's Left, the podcast where not being right doesn't always mean you're wrong. I'm your host, Conor Bryan, and as I mentioned before, I'm here in the studio today with Professor Mesquita to talk about politics from a bird's eye perspective. That is to say, how we actually go about building a framework for understanding politics. In his 2011 book, The Dictator's Handbook, Why Bad Behavior is Almost Always Good Politics, he and his co-author Alistair Smith set out to illustrate why the common categorical demarcations we often use such as democracy, authoritarian, even liberal and conservative regimes, are by and large oversimplifications. Instead, he argues, we ought to be looking at politics, and therefore policy implementation, from the perspective of a self-interested leader in charge. In this episode, we are going to talk about the implications of adopting this framework in the area of tax policy, healthcare, and even foreign aid. We are going to discuss how history can be explained in light of theory as well as the underlying assumptions it takes to build such a theory in the first place. So let's get right into it.
2: To
1: To understand the worldview of Professor Mesquita, and adopt it as our own, one needs to understand his development of the Selectoric Theory, The selectorate theory was first laid out by him and co-author Alistair Smith in the logic of political survival. However, it gained stardom through the dictator's handbook and even aligned Mesquita with political theorists like Thomas Hobbes and Niccolo Machiavelli. Optimists be warned, Mesquita and this theory are cynical by design. How does it work? Well, the starting point is a self-interested leader. This leader is determined to maintain power if they have it, or gain some if they don't. What makes them self interested is that even when they come into office, take a dictator usurping a previously democratic institution for example, they're focused on doing whatever it takes to keep themselves there. But, obviously, they can't do it alone. Immediately outside of this dictator is what Mesquita refers to as the real selectorate. Simply put, This is the winning coalition responsible for our nefarious dictators successful campaign. This winning coalition is small for autocracies and large for democracies. Taking a step back from this real selectorate and you have what's called the nominal selectorate. This is the pool of people that our dictator will use to keep their winning coalition completely loyal to them. With a healthy size of a nominal or unessential group of followers, the real selectorate will constantly feel their position threatened and therefore be incentivized to do whatever it takes to keep their leader happy. Lastly, we have the masses, or as Professor Mesquita refers to them, the interchangeables. This group is by and large irrelevant to the dictator, seeing as all they're good for is paying taxes to maintain the upkeep of an empire, but at the end of the day, remain relatively uninfluential in terms of whether the dictator gets to keep their job. To summarize, we have the leader, which is where all of our study and empirical methods will be honing in on to try to navigate why it is that they're making the decisions they do and what, because of that, is a rational decision to make. Outside of that, you have three rungs. You have the winning coalition, the group of essential influencers. You have, outside of that, the group of unessentials. And then, lastly, but simply not least, you have the group of interchangeables. Now with that, you have just about all you need to take a realist perspective on any given political topic, but you're going to need a lot more in order to delve deep into the pathology of these leaders. Before we do that, however, I want to take the time to lay out an example for you about just how this electorate theory can be implicated. Take the 2016 election in the United States. Now, on one end of the spectrum, you have Senator Bernie Sanders, who appealed to the mass majority. In our example, this is the group of interchangeables, treating them not as simply interchangeable, but in fact, deriving their worth as essential backers of his campaign. He averaged about $30 a donation and was able to challenge the Clinton fund the entire campaign. That is to say, he raised over $200 million. Now, at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have who is now President Donald Trump. Donald Trump, however, instead of reaching to the pool of interchangeables to derive much of his support in terms of funding the campaign, he was self-funded. That is to say, his pool of essential backers was one. It was him and him alone, contrasted by Bernie Sanders, whose essential backers were a majority of the working class and a pool of loyal Democratic voters. But now that Donald Trump is actually in power, we can start looking at his pathology and his behavior with even more nuance. To explain this, you're going to need to know the five guiding rules of politics. And for that, here's Professor Mesquita. First rule of politics,
0: depend on as few people as you possibly can to keep you in power. That is, have as small a winning coalition as possible. Second, have that coalition drawn from as large a pool of potential members as possible so that those in the winning coalition know that if if they don't do what you want, they're easily replaced. There's a large pool of people who can substitute for them. Third. Tax the hell out of the people who are not in your winning coalition, subject only to the limitation that you not tax them so heavily that they prefer to fight you and have a revolution than to tolerate you. So you want to tax them up to that cut point. Fourth, spend just enough money on the members of the winning coalition so that when they compare how they're doing with you to how they think they might do with somebody else, they decide to remain loyal rather than defect. Don't pay them more than that and don't pay them less. If you pay them less, somebody else will come along and make them a better offer and they'll abandon you. If you pay them more then if they are the sort of people who buy fancy cars and palaces and airplanes are okay because they're going to just be spending the money. But if they're the kind of people, who save the money and invest it, they might build up a big enough treasure chest to become a rival to you. So you don't want to pay them enough for that to happen. So pay just enough to keep them loyal. And don't waste money other than your discretionary money, don't waste money that you have to spend on the coalition, spending instead to benefit the people in society, because they're not the ones who are keeping you
1: in power. This is true even for democracies.
0: Look, for example, at what Donald Trump's policies look like, which I distinguish from the Republican Party's policies because the Republicans in Congress have a different constituency from Donald Trump. Trump is not worried about, I'm going to guess, I don't know anything about your politics, but I'm going to guess he's not worried about, well, and you're in Canada, so that too, but you're, you're the foreign devil for him. Trump is not worried about what the average voter in California, for example, thinks of him or in New York, because he's not going to win California. He's not going to win New York. He cares about keeping the voters in those places whose support he has to have happy, just as Barack Obama cared about keeping the people in this case in New York and in California happy and didn't care very much about making the people in places that were not going to support him happy so my sort of general rule of thumb about american politics or any politics is republicans want to reach into the pockets of people who disproportionately vote democrat that is poorer people and take money out and give it to people who vote republican that is relatively wealthy people democrats want to reach into the pockets Of people who generally vote Republican, that is wealthier people, and take money out and put it in the pockets of people who generally vote Democrat, that is poorer people. There's no great ideological distinction that needs to be made. Both of them want to reach into the pockets of their adversaries, take money out, and give it to their supporters. That's how politics works. So it's about what will get me reelected,
1: not what will make you, the general public, better off. I think that in the six years The Dictator's Handbook has been circulating bookshelves, a lot of people seem to enjoy comparing it with Machiavelli's The Prince and his precursory discourses. However, in the book itself, You and Alistair make a lot of comparisons to Hobbes' state of nature and where your work is picking up where the leviathan maybe ended. Can you talk to me a little bit about what it is about despots particularly? Because the dictator's handbook and the selectorate framework of thinking, as you've mentioned, isn't just about absolute power. It's not just about looking at regimes using a more authoritarian institution to enact certain policies. You can also look at it from a democratic perspective. And that's something that I really took away from reading the book was that you no longer have this binary of a political spectrum between a liberal government and a more conservative government or a democracy and an authoritarian regime. But instead you have these three degrees of the influencers and the essentials and the indispensables, and with that framework in mind, you sort of begin to take away, um, for lack of a better term, the colors that taint politics, like the red and the blue, and instead you focus on the people, where your assumption is we're acting from the self-interest of the leader in charge. How does this get placed into conversation with Hobbes' state of nature?
0: So uh, Hobbes, who lived through the English Civil War, uh, had the notion that uh, the best form of government was the Leviathan, which is essentially, obviously simplifying here, uh, an absolute monarch or dictator, and who in Hobbes's notion was, had to be benevolent because you could not be a monarch and survive in office if you harmed the people. That was wishful thinking. He was quite wrong about that. And so we we like to draw attention that here's somebody who confused the experience of his lifetime with a general principle about politics. Uh, The thing that that I admire about Hobbes, and I have great admiration for Hobbes, is that Hobbes could be thought of as a rational choice theorist. That is, he was very concerned with arriving at conclusions in a logical way from first principles rather than from observation. Machiavelli, whom I also greatly admire uh, and has, whom, as you correctly note, is much more interesting, in, 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 at least in my view, in the discourses than in The Prince. Uh, Machiavelli was much more of an empirical social scientist. He was looking at how uh, towns and villages in Germany and and in Italy, for example, functioned and tried to generalize from how they differed from each other as to what the explanatory factors were. Both Hobbes and Machiavelli, obviously very smart guys uh, and very good writers suffered from a lack of the tools of modern social science. Uh, They didn't have calculus available to them to rigorously consider change, uh, and they didn't have statistics available to them to assess observations in a uh, dispassionate, rigorous way. And so they both, in Alistair's and my view, had some deep insights into politics and also made some mistakes. And so we, we do think of, and that's why we we, we, we do frame the, uh, the dictator's handbook and also the logical political survival uh, to a significant degree around Hobbes and Machiavelli, because we think that they had these, these two perspectives uh, on politics that uh, we are building on, um, but we are seeing within the framework of our construct, this selector theory, that there is no great divide between democracy and autocracy, that there is just differences in kind. that The key difference in kind is that it's just not efficient to rely on corruption and bribery and black markets and so forth when you have to satisfy millions of people to stay in power, but it is efficient when you have to satisfy only a few dozen or a few hundred people. Uh, So democratic leaders, at least in our theory, would be very happy if they could be dictators, if they could rely on very few people, and they make efforts to do so through gerrymandering and so forth. But their problem is that they have inherited a political system that makes them rely on a large coalition, and although it's not impossible, it's extremely hard to change that system. And if it is sufficiently large past a particular dividing line, then it is, in fact, impossible to change it to make it a small coalition system. So democratic leaders are not inherently different. It's just that what, their liberty to, to pursue their interests is more narrowly constrained because they have to satisfy a lot more people.
1: Bringing all of this back now into the current debate over the Republican-controlled Congress, um, midterm elections coming up for a lot of uh, seats that are being challenged. What do you see using your own rational choice theory and model of the selectorates is a crucial starting point and maybe even a further two-year plan for a liberal agenda that acknowledges its large coalition base acknowledges the adversarial group particularly in the realm of taxes or even more canonically nowadays um, through healthcare as being an efficient way of pursuing an agenda that's a big question um so let me say several
0: things first of all uh, i believe that uh, the Republicans will have a hard time, a very hard time, retaining their control of the House of Representatives. Uh, President Trump has a very small winning coalition. You know, if you moved as few as 78,000 votes in the presidential election, Hillary Clinton would be president. So he has, a, he has a very fine line to tread. The Republicans, as a party in the Congress, have a larger winning coalition than Donald Trump has, but the voters are likely to see Trump and their members of Congresses closely related, more closely than in fact they probably are. That works to the great advantage of the Democrats if the Democrats are smart about it. In my view, to be smart about it means that they need to run candidates who are more to the center of the party and less towards the Bernie Sanders wing of the party as a simple electoral strategy. The The simple fact is that they need to win voters who describe themselves as independents. And if they adopt a too liberal perspective, just as if the Republicans have, have adopted a too conservative perspective, the center either stays home or votes for the other party. So whichever party does the better job at
1: satisfying the
0: wants of the people in the middle is more likely to win.
1: I think that it's interesting you bring it back to the independent voters, because the recent election showed us that there ac- there might be a larger body of these self-proclaimed independent voters or non-affiliates than we previously were willing to recognize, at least in the media. And I think a lot of them have proven now that they're more comfortable with voting outside of the two-party mainstream. That is to say, they're more comfortable voting libertarian, or they're more comfortable voting green. And from what you've just said, it doesn't sound like that's the way that you see it. It doesn't sound like you see these third parties as much of a rising factor in people's strategic mindset, and more so that you see just the bouncing between two parties.
0: Well, I think it's more more complex than that. So the independent non-affiliated voters, Uh, are among the people who are least likely to vote. So a critical element is to bring those voters out to the polls. Second, when you say they're more comfortable voting Libertarian or voting Green and so forth, um, to be personal a little bit, uh, I have voted both of those ways on several occasions. I view myself as an unaffiliated voter. I have also voted for a deceased senator while he, after he was deceased for president because I thought it was a better choice than the options that we were given as a, as a protest vote. That is a, as a way of, um, of amassing a vote that says the choices that we have been presented with are bad. The two-party system is not some fluke of... Uh, the united states or some other places it is a consequence of the voting rules that we have places that have proportional representation have multi-party systems places that have first the pa- first past the post voting that is whoever gets the plurality of votes wins tend to have two parties and very small third parties because people make the calculation. Well, I'm holding my nose. I don't like this candidate, but I like this candidate better than the major alternative. So some people such as myself throw their votes away to make a statement. I, I vote in a state where in any event, the outcome is not in doubt. Uh, and although in this election I did vote for Hillary Clinton, I was sufficiently fearful. Um, but, uh, the typical voter makes the calculation: Well, one of these people is going to is going to win. Which one is less bad? So, uh, yeah, I do think the two parties dominate because not it's not some psychological thing. It is called Duverger's law. Um, Duverger's law tells us that in first past the post electoral systems, you will have two dominant parties, and that is true everywhere in the world where there is a first past the post system. Now, um, with regard to taxes and healthcare, let me, let me say a little bit about that. Uh, Alistair and I and a colleague who passed away recently, George Downs, uh, did a selectorate paper on uh, income tax policy. What does the selectorate theory tell us theoretically about income tax policy? And then we tested it on data for 80 some odd countries. And in a nutshell, for democracies, what it tells us is the following. Flat taxes are not an equilibrium in democratic societies. Only progressive taxation is an equilibrium. But the nature of the progressive tax depends upon whether the winning coalition is drawn disproportionately from the poorer half of society, so to speak, or the wealthier half of society. In either case, it's going to be progressive for theoretical reasons that we don't have time to go into. Uh, But if it is drawn from the poorer side of society, the poorer side, as I described when I talked about Barack Obama's policies, is to reach into the pockets of wealthy people and take money out, that is, the opposition, and put it in their pockets. So they prefer a more progressive Structure where they tax wealthy people more heavily and subsidize th- their coalition more heavily. If the coalition is drawn from the wealthy half of society, broadly speaking in the United States Republicans, then the tax policy is still progressive, but it's less progressive. It is still necessary to tax the wealthy at a higher rate, than the poor, not a flat tax. But now the idea is to tax the wealthy less and tax the poor more than was true before. So you get a less progressive tax structure. That's equilibrium behavior. So the tax picture is not going to change except depending on which coalition is in power. Healthcare is a different question. Healthcare could be presented in lots of different ways, and I am surprised that nobody has presented health care in the same way that, for example, defense spending is presented. That is, the core function of government is to secure its citizens in their homes and in their lives. So we need a national defense to protect us against outside foreign threats. We need a national guard and police to protect us against threats to our bodies and property at home. And we need national health care to protect us against catastrophic illness that is not the product of our behavioral choices so you might wind up with uh, some awful disease that's not your fault it's not you did something that made you deserving of this punishment instead you just had bad luck and the government's job is to defend you against threats to your well-being foreign and domestic and I think, as well, medical. These are things that people don't control that aren't. No, no, some some sickness, of course, is controllable. But for the sickness that is not a matter of choice, this would be a natural area for the government to provide health care. This is, it seems to me, an argument that Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul could both agree to. Bernie Sanders on the left certainly believes that people should be protected from being ruined physically and economically and emotionally through no fault of their own. Rand Paul doesn't like to tax Republican voters to benefit non-Republican voters, but Rand Paul does believe that it is the function of government to secure us against domestic threats. And that includes disease and illnesses that are not our choice. But nobody has presented healthcare care in this way. It is very much the same sort of way of thinking of it as when Dwight Eisenhower introduced the idea of interstate highways. It was as a matter of national defense so that you could move troops quickly across the country to defend any part that was being threatened. Or when Lyndon Johnson introduced Medicare, it was very much with the idea that nobody should be a victim of things that they didn't cause. So it seems to me that this is a case that Democrats can make and Republicans can make, and I don't see any partisan basis for opposing securing people against threats to their well-being from foreign adversaries and domestic adversaries including domestic disease
1: there are a lot of similarities between national defense health insurance markets and large infrastructure initiatives they're all projects that require substantial federal funds and at the base of it seems like any democratic institution would find supporters for these kind of causes across any political spectrum. Any given country should be able to defend itself against foreign threats, provide for the well-being of its citizens, and enhance the freedom of movement domestically via interstate highways and freeways. Indeed even during the election last year Trump was campaigning on a platform to fix the nation's infrastructure.
0: I'm calling on all Democrats and Republicans to join together in the great rebuilding of America. We are a nation that created the Panama Canal, the transcontinental railroad, and the interstate highway system. We'll take even fixing them, but we're gonna get them going again like they've never been before.
1: As well as, at least in the early days, promote a universal coverage of health care.
0: Everybody's got to be covered. This is an un-Republican thing for me to say, because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25%, they can't afford private. But- Universal health care. I am going to take care of everybody.
1: What's different now than in the campaign is that Trump no longer has to appeal to this mass of interchangeable supporters who were crucial to his victory when it came to the ballot box, but are no longer crucial to the maintaining of power now that he is actually in office. And we see this in policy shifts across the board. But before we do that, let's do a little compare and contrast between authoritarian federal funding projects and democratically funded projects. Back to Mesquita. So the
0: Mobutu Seiziseko in Zaire, now the Congo, uh, inherited a vast road system, and he destroyed it. Uh, By the end of his 32 years in power, 90% of the paved roads in Zaire were no longer paved roads. They were destroyed. Uh, He said, as a part of a eulogy to a a friend of his who was a dictator in another African country who had been uh, overthrown and killed, uh, Mobutu said, I told him not to build roads. If you build roads, they can come and get you. So, In an authoritarian regime, building roads is dangerous, although it is a good way of hiding stolen money, uh, because big projects can be full of corruption. However, in a democratic system, uh, so the the interstate highway system, the, the cool idea that Dwight Eisenhower had was to make this a national defense public good. That is, he could sell the idea as everybody, all parties, agreed that the government had a responsibility to defend us. And so interstate highways were essential because little two-lane two roads were not going to be good for tanks moving across. Um, so you, you can, if you put health care uh, in a public goods basket, that is, it's something that benefits society, as opposed to it benefits those people who didn't vote for me instead of these people who did, Uh, then it becomes an easier argument to sell, I think, in a large coalition democratic society. So it is true that a lot of the arguments on the conservative side against health care, and these are not new arguments, they've been made over the history of the country, uh, is essentially that I'm going, you're going to take money from me, the hardworking taxpayer, and transfer it to not hardworking people or not working people uh, to to make them better off at my expense. Why should I pay for them? So that's the conservative argument. But if you put it in the context of, well, first of all, by the way, that argument as an empirical matter is false. So, but. But that's neither here nor there. It is false, but people believe it. But if you make the argument, we need able-bodied people in this country. And the only way to ensure that people are able-bodied is to ensure that they have proper health care from childhood forward and that when they suffer from a disease that can be treated, that it not be left untreated simply because they don't have enough money. And that becomes a a national security, national productivity question, which is harder for people to oppose. So if, if you make the case, but one has to demonstrate this with careful, rigorous logic and evidence. If you make the case for the productivity gains, then it should be an easier sell. We should note that even the harshest dictatorships, have good health care for a portion of their population. Who? The people who are the labor force. It is not in the interest of a dictator to have a general population of working age people who are so sick that they can't produce money to make the dictator rich. So generally, there's good primary education and there's good basic health care in such societies for working people. On the other hand, there's terrible health care for mothers and infants, because as it turns out in in autocratic societies, infants are of course not part of the workforce. And so infant mortality is very high because infants are expendable. They're not helping to keep the dictator in power. In more democratic societies, health is seen more broadly as a public good that benefits everybody in society, and so infant mortality rates are lower. In the United States, where there is more debate on whether health care is a general public good, part of the general welfare of society, there's a higher infant mortality rate. It's lower, obviously, than in most of the third world, but it's higher than in many democracies, because we don't think of health care sufficiently as a public good, as making everybody better off. That seems to
1: me very odd. It's odd and it isn't at the same time. It's odd because it's difficult to wrap your head around any humane reason why healthcare isn't considered a public good, why, if it's at all possible, every single citizen shouldn't have the right to maintain an appropriate level of well-being. However, it's not at all odd because this is coming from an aristocratic party. It's coming from a party whose base of support is not in that large pool of expendables like Bernie Sanders' campaign, for example. Peel back the numbers and the voters behind those who showed up for Trump and you still have that single individual that self-funded individual who's breaking through all of our political norms. And that's entirely representative of how he's going to govern and exactly who he's going to govern for. It's himself. And the Republican Party is just going to follow suit, like they did in nominating him. But I want to move on to foreign policy, because I think we've sufficiently covered a lot of the domestic policies. Um, there's a wonderful introduction to your actual foreign aid chapter in the Dictator's Handbook that I'm going to read and I would like you to elaborate on because I feel like it accurately depicts what it is that a foreign liberal agenda likes to think about itself when in reality is not the case. And then I would like you to comment on what a successful liberal for an agenda might look like under a rational theorist framework uh, as well as you know maybe one that benefits the greater good you write a democrat's lot is not a happy one she must continually try to find better policy solutions to reward her large number of supporters and yet her hands are tied she has little discretion in her policy choices Her pet projects must be subjugated to the wishes of her large body of supporters, and she can steal virtually nothing for herself. She is like a selfless angel, appearing to place the concerns of her people over her own interests, that is, until she turns her attention overseas. And then the rest of the chapter sort of leads into how people decide whether or not to give country X or country Y a level of foreign aid. And it turns out that a lot of these motivations, these driving forces behind this, have to do with political leverage in the surrounding area, whether or not country X or country Y is adopting um, certain principles that the country giving out these handouts uh, believes to make them better off. And then even as you mentioned later on, we're not actually following up on a lot of these countries and whether or not they're adopting the principles that we set out. We're just almost giving them loans and then checking back 10 years later only to find there may be a new despot in charge who's stolen the money that we've handed them in the first place.
0: Well, it's not only to find. it's That's part of the package of the logic of giving foreign aid. So this is one of the areas where the selector theory leads to rather depressing conclusions. So what is the job of a democratically elected leader? The job of a democratically elected leader is to make her or his constituents happy enough with the jobs, with the leader's performance, to reelect them. It is not... To make poor people in other countries better off unless that makes their constituents at home happier what is the job of a petty dictator in some other country some poor country it is to make his or her cronies well enough off that they remain loyal so that the dictator stays in power this creates a natural marriage. I, the democratic leader, need at the margin policy concessions from you, the petty dictator, concessions that will make my constituents happier. In exchange, you need money to help bribe your cronies so that you can stay in power. Now, if you were also a democratic leader, And I wanted you to change your policies that would be very hard for you to do because your voters might abandon you if you adopted policies they didn't like so I would have to pay you enough money to compensate them for those bad policies so if I give money to a democratic leader I have to give them a lot of money therefore I'm unlikely to give aid to democratic leaders if you're a dictator on the other hand and you're poor then a few dollars goes a long way, worth a lot to you, and so I can get you to make policy concessions to me for very little money. You are the most attractive sort of country I want to give aid to, petty dictators. What do I expect you to do with that money? I expect you to steal it. I expect you to spend it on your cronies. What I'm looking for is concessions that will make my voters happier. More likely to keep supporting me. That's in a nutshell the logic that's spelled out more thoroughly in, in the book and in many journal articles that we've written. That's a very depressing view. As it turns out, there are four groups of people who are affected by foreign aid, and three of those four benefit. The leader of the donor countries benefit because their constituents are made at the margin better off, and so are more likely to reelect the leader and the leader of the recipient country is made better off because that leader now has money to spread around to the coalition and keep them loyal. The only people who are not made better off by foreign aid are the citizens of the dictatorship or the authoritarian regime because they are now getting policies that they don't like in exchange for this money. And this money is making it easier for their dictator to survive in power. It incre- a, 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 an average amount of foreign aid increases a, su- a dictator's survival by one-third. So they are getting policies they don't like and a, a bad leader who's going to survive even longer because they sold the policies that the people wanted out from under them. How do you make that into a more attractive world of foreign aid? That's essentially your question. I have a former student named Banseng Tan, who is teaching at Boasigi University in Turkey, who's writing a book on this subject, Uh, has written some papers on this subject. He has a nice result. His result is the following. I primarily give aid to get these concessions, just as I laid out. So that means I give aid to countries that can provide me with security benefits. Let me put my troops there or uh, spy for me, become sources of information, whatever. Uh, so I primarily give aid to gain security benefits or to gain economic benefits. So countries that will give me uh, more favorable trade relations, they'll buy more of my goods, and so on and so forth. But there are other countries that seek aid that are neither security nor economically, commercially beneficial countries. In those few cases of such countries that are not economically attractive to me and are not, or to my constituents are not attractive on a security basis, I could make my constituents happy at the margin, because typically democratic pe- constituents in democratic countries like democracy. I could at the margin make my constituents happier if I offered such governments that are not valuable on security or on commercial matters, if I offered them foreign aid in exchange for political reform. And what Banseng Tang has shown is that while this is a very limited, so to speak, market, it does exist and it does produce political reform. Democratic leaders are not likely to pursue a democratization agenda where it's not gonna be beneficial to their constituents. So we should also realize that while we pretty much all say that we would like to see democracy everywhere, when push comes to shove, in fact, that's not true. When we see a more democratic government overseas whose citizens favor policies antithetical to what we want or what we think of as the right way to govern, We opposed them so when hamas was democratically elected in palestine it it, the u.s immediately and others as well the europeans as well cut off foreign aid to them because the policies that they were advancing were antithetical to what american or french or british voters wanted when the shah was overthrown by ayatollah khomeini's revolution it certainly didn't become a democratic country, but it became a more democratic country than it had been under the Shah. At least at uh, the local level and partially at the national level, citizens have a, have a say in choosing their leaders. They, they are constrained in who they can choose from, so it's far from uh, an ideal democracy, but it's more democratic than it was. But we support them less, and the average American favors supporting them less because the policies that their voters seem to want was death to the Shah and death to America. People don't seem to want to give assistance to people who want to kill them, even if it's just a slogan. So, in fact, what we want, we, the people, what we want our government to do is extract concessions that make us better off. And while we say we want to make poor people better off, in fact, when we have to choose between making poor people better off in other countries or making ourselves better off, we choose ourselves. And that's how foreign aid, unfortunately, works. Making it a happy outcome, other than the work that Ben Seng-Teng that I mentioned is doing, which is in a very limited segment of potential aid targets. The logic of democracy runs against using aid to advance the welfare of poor people because the recipient governments are interested in keeping themselves in power and we are interested in extracting concessions. Now, you might give aid at the local level. And there are a lot of people who are under the mistaken impression that if you give to local entrepreneurs or to local organizations and so forth, that you're bypassing the dictatorial government. But then you should ask yourself, what are the circumstances under which the government allows that aid to reach people? So what the evidence shows is that they allow this assistance to help people in areas that support the government much more so than in areas of the country that oppose the government. And if an individual entrepreneur begins to become really successful and begins to look like a political threat at the next level of government, they tend not to be able to scale up their success because they tend to get quashed by the government. So it's really hard to do good deeds through aid. Now there are exceptions. Uh, for example, it was a very lovely article in the New York Times on this uh, a week or so ago. If you provide money to, for physicians, for example, to perform surgery to correct, correct uh, cleft palate or uh, club foot or something like that, well, then you're benefiting people. Now, whether it's only people that the government lets you get to, that's a more complex question. But at least you're benefiting people directly. On the other hand, if you go in to give generally broad-based free medical support, you're not helping people. Uh, Doctors Without Borders went in after the earthquake a few years ago uh, in in Haiti and uh, provided medical care for the many, many displaced people. The consequence of that was that they destroyed Haiti's medical community. Because the medical community couldn't compete with free medical care. So many of the physicians in Haiti left the country. Many of them came to the United States because they couldn't make a living in Haiti. And that meant that after the Doctors Without Borders went home, which they do after a short while inevitably, medical care in Haiti was worse, not better. So it's really, really hard to do good, effective foreign aid work. That is the sad reality.
1: I think that's the kind of realist take, however depressing it may be, that I appreciate out of this podcast and the people that I am fortunate enough to interview. To close things off, I'd like to ask you, um, if you have a piece of media in mind that during these trials and tribulations help you to stay grounded or even offer some inspiration. It could be a book, a movie, uh, a news article that you've read, a song you like to listen to, um, but just anything that helps you uh, recognize that you're still sane and the world out there can be understood.
0: Well, I like to go back and listen to Scottish border war ballads. Uh, they they give me great solace that the world was m- miserable 500 years ago and it's still miserable. <laughs> and uh, uh, you remind me I hadn't not remembered the passage you read. Uh, that it's good to go back and reread passages in the Dictator's Handbook. It's an extremely cynical book, uh, but it 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 does remind me that. Uh, Being cynical doesn't mean being wrong. (laughs) Understanding how the world works is the single most important requirement to working out how you might change and improve the world. Activism is great if it is grounded in an understanding of why the world behaves, why the political world in this case behaves in the way it does. Wishful thinking, feeling good, doesn't change things. Understanding why things look the way they do and then working within the incentive structure of how things actually work is the way to change the world. That's, that's my sort of, my wisdom of the day.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, author of The Dictator's Handbook and avid listener of Scottish border wartime ballads. If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me.
2: There lived a wife at Usher's well, and a wealthy wife was she. She had three stout and stalwart sons and sent them o'er the sea. Oh and sent them o'er the
1: sea. Thank you so much for listening to the first ever episode of What's they Left Podcast me. and Thank you especially to my first ever guest star, Professor Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. I couldn't have done it without you. And just to leave things on a high note, uh, the next few episodes are going to come out a lot quicker than this one did. The last month has been a bit hectic for me, but amidst all this chaos, remember there's always one thing that can ground us, and that's Scottish wartime music.
2: It was a wee Cooper while left in Fife. Nakeda, noo, 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 and he has gotten a gentle wife. He will a wallakee hoo, John Dugala lane, She wouldn't be pick, she wouldn't be brew. Nakeda, nakeda, noo, noo, nu, for spoiling, oh, her comely hue. He will a hoo, John Dugala roo. She wouldn't a cart, she wouldn't a spin, nickity nockity noo noo nu, For shaming o' her gentle kin. He will a wallicky hood, John Dougal a She wouldn't a wash, she wouldn't a ring, Nickity-nockity-noo-noo-noo, For smiling o' her golden ring. He will a wallicky hood, John the Cooper has gone to his wool shack. Ne-kadine, noo, 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 and put his sheepskin across his wife's back. He will a walacky hoo, John Dugald Aline, paru ru, ru, ru. I will not thrash you, for your gentle kin. Ne-kadine, noo, but I will thrash my ain sheepskin. He will a walacky hoo, John Dugald Aline, paru shadiru, ru, ru, ru. Gotten a gentle wife. Naked in noo, noo, Just send ye for the wee Cooper of Fife. Hey, lewa leki hu. John do galaline.